Welcome to the Fright Lab. You opened the podcast. We came. I'm Lucas Shokum, and with me, as always, is the engineer himself, Joseph Wren. How are we doing tonight, Joe? Do I look like a man who engineers podcasts? Yes. And good evening to you, all of you gruesome people. We have sounds that have never been heard and survived by man or woman. It's not a guy-girl thing. I am so excited to talk about these films. <laughs> I think Hellraiser is a film, one of the true cult series of horror sequels. Before people were picking on Halloween sequels on the internet, we were talking about Hellraiser and how ridiculous these sequels got. And how much we love Doug Bradley and the makeup. How much something simple and horrifying became so can we say outlandish, comedic, and weird? Well, Because there is that one time he was literally the pedestal in the corner of the room. Well, it's worth noting that um, we're basically not going to talk about too many of the sequels. And uh, before we kind of get all the way down the rabbit hole of this episode, uh, quick content warning. This episode is not safe for work. We'll be talking about some pretty intense subject matter, including sexuality, both positive and negative. This definitely isn't an episode for the kids. Listener discretion is advised. And as always, if this isn't going to be subject matter you're comfortable with, we don't take that personally. Skip this episode. So uh, as Joe alluded to, and the title of the episode would definitely tell you, um, we're going to be talking about Clive Barker's Hellraiser, both the first couple of the films, but also (laughs) the novella that started it all, The Hellbound Heart. Both the films and the novella have had a pretty massive impact on me and my tastes in horror media. But as I've said many times before, this isn't Grandpa Lucas's nostalgia corner. I decided to take on this episode for a handful of reasons. So you'll have to indulge me for just a moment while I try to disentangle this subject a little. The Hellbound Heart and Hellraiser are arguably the best known of Clive Barker's works, and I would wager that they are way, way more popular than Cabal and its film adaptation, Nightbreed. And that says nothing of The Last Illusion and its film adaptation, The Lord of Illusions. I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that most of the audience hasn't read Barker's Imagica, which is a shame. It's a strange book. But it was an important read for me during a, uh, let's say, interesting time in my life. Barker, uh, along with William S. Burroughs and Mark Z. Danielewski, filled that place in my life that Bukowski, Henry Miller, and Jack Kerouac filled for many people in Gen X. I'm also willing to bet that the works of Clive Barker have been a part of people's lives during the quote-unquote interesting times we all seem to have. Underneath Barker's seeming fixation on kinky sex, weird religious themes, occult practices, and a fire hose of gore lies a surprisingly human heart. Barker often deals, albeit less than immediately, with questions of love, desire, identity, and community. This combination of horror and heart is a powerful thing. In conjunction with an episode we have coming about Satoshi Khan, I think this is a really interesting discussion. Furthermore, 
Hellraiser and its source novel have had a curious and sometimes hilarious longevity. The original Hellraiser film came out in 1987, 35 plus years ago from the date of this recording in 2023. Hellraiser is undoubtedly an important piece of horror history by nearly every measure, and it's deeply loved by its fan base. Now, we're going to steer clear of its latter-day sequels. It's hard to argue that the image of the Cenobites and the Puzzle Box are still powerful. Therefore, we will discuss its 2022 reiteration briefly later on, but we're just going to steer clear of those sequels. Should we eventually do an episode about bad horror sequels and when they jump the shark? I think that's part of the charm, especially when you talk about these classic films that lived on through cheap slap some paint on its sequels or VHS tapes that were released very small in video stores. I think Hellraiser, like Die Hard, is one of the best properties to be shoved in at the last second when somebody didn't know how to end their movie. Because there are a few of those sequels that are very good and very clearly had nothing to do with Hellraiser, had nothing to do with Pinhead, but somebody named Lucas was sitting there reading the story. You know what this needs? Pinhead on page 93. You know, the problem with that, all that is, and um, I don't know, call me just like vicious, but you might be the only person I know who would describe the movie Hellworld as charming. <laughs> I mean, I, th I think that was the internet one. I think that was the one where it was like pinhead on the internet, which is what a just fucking daffy concept. <laughs> it had to be done eventually, my friend. The hell it did. And finally, there is like a third reason I really wanted to talk about Hellraiser tonight. And that reason, a friend of mine cracked a joke to me that I hadn't made an episode about a movie that they had seen. I am a human being remarkably fueled by spite. So I want to prove that I can, in fact, dip out of the shadow of cinematic obscurity and into the mainstream. Sometimes you have to set goals, right? You know, but all of that aside, that's kind of how it's like funny to me. I find that the plot of Hellraiser and the Hellbound Heart shouldn't have ever crossed into the mainstream in the first place. To me, Hellraiser does sort of feel like an invoked power, just like how you have to willingly open the puzzle box, you know? The Cenobites won't just hunt you down for no reason. They might be hideous bondage demons, or in the words of Clive Barker, magnificent super butchers, but they are reasonable hideous bondage demons. Sure, you might get a face full of hooked chains, but you have to meet them halfway in the endeavor, right? And that's how it is with the media. I think it has to meet you halfway. It's for that reason that I think Hellraiser is something of a line for a lot of horror movies and horror movies fans. You might not mind a movie like Scream or one or more of the recent Halloween remakes, but if you're more into, say, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you'll probably pick Hellraiser over Scream or even the likes of, like, A Nightmare on Elm Street 4. <laughs> Hellraiser feels a bit like the outer edge of a genre, outside the mainstream, a gate by which you might enter into darker, more mysterious, more extreme sides of a genre. Think of it as 
baby's first extreme horror film. So follow us into the darkness as we start with the plots of Hellraiser and the Hellbound Heart. And FYI, spoilers ahead. I know. We have until the end of the episode to tell you all about it. I have to tell you, Joe, that's one of the worst pinhead impersonations I've ever heard. It's been a long day. (laughs) And my voice is not prepared properly. Fair enough. I need more beer. Okay. I have seen the future of horror. His name is Clive Barker. Undisclosed part of the world, a man hands over a pile of money to another man purchasing a curiously decorated box. Our purchaser, Frank Cotton, has come a long way for this little curio, and at long last he has it. Sometime later, Frank Cotton is sitting on the floor of an undisclosed room surrounded by candles. The box he purchased is a puzzle box, and he is working feverishly to solve it. But soon after he solves it, Frank finds that he has gotten entirely more than he had possibly bargained for. This box, referred to in some iterations as Le Merchant's box, or simply more ominously, the lament configuration, is no mere bauble. This puzzle box is both a door and a key, opening the way for and calling out to a group called the Cenobites. Quickly, they begin to punish Frank, and the whole lot disappears. Sometime later, Frank's brother Larry and his wife Julia come to the long-neglected Cotton family home. They're talking about moving in when they discover the remnants of Frank's debaucherous lifestyle. After a domestic injury causes Larry to bleed on the floor where Frank had been whisked away, a hell of sorts is definitely raised. And caught in the middle of all of this is Kirsty Cotton, Larry's daughter and Frank's niece. She has a bad relationship with Julia and is trying desperately to not let it affect her relationship with her father. Soon enough, the Cotton family's domestic disputes are going to come to a brutal head, and the mysterious Cenobites will come to claim what's owed to them. And then there's the sequel, Hellbound. The plot of Hellbound starts mere hours after the end of the original Hellraiser. Kirsty, driven to near madness by her encounters with the Cenobites, finds herself at the Chenard Institute, run by the hospital's namesake, an apparent neurosurgeon and psychiatrist named Dr. Chenard. 
Some people seem to think that Kirsty is merely traumatized by a multiple murder she witnessed, but our quote-unquote good Dr. Chenard specs differently. As it turns out, Dr. Chenard is something of an occultist with a keen interest in the lament configuration. Soon enough, Kirsty will again go head-to-head with the Cenobites in a battle not only for her life, but for her very soul. And finally, let's get this part out of the way. The original novella that inspired all of this madness is The Hellbound Heart. This short read is almost identical to the first film. There are a few differences, of course. Larry is named Rory. Kirsty is a friend and not Larry slash Rory's daughter. The Cenobites have a slightly expanded commentary to them as well, along with having their physical descriptions differ somewhat from what's shown in the film. I'm going to talk about it later in the episode, but there's the short version of the plot. In the beginning of the episode, I said that Hellraiser and its immediate sequel is something of a dividing line for horror in my mind. It's not to say that there wasn't good stuff about the first Nightmare on Elm Street or Halloween. Frankly, I'm a fan of both. But the Hellbound Heart, Hellraiser, and Hellbound Hellraiser 2 does not really fall into that same category. You'll hear people describe Hellraiser's primary antagonist, Pinhead, in the same category as Freddy Krueger, Jason Voorhees, Michael Myers, and the like. But I mostly don't consider them, or the rest of the Cenobites, to be in the same category. We need to answer a question. Just what the hell is a Cenobite? So the word Cenobite comes from a Latin word used to describe a monastic community. A Cenobite is therefore a monk, someone living in a communal religious order. Now, it's not stated directly in the movies, but our leather and hook-clad Cenobites are religious prelates. In the Hellbound Heart, the Cenobites are described as members of the, quote-unquote, the Order of the Gash. Now, beyond their penchant for extra-dimensional travel and exploring the outer regions of experience through <laughs> radical means, we don't know what sort of religion the Order of the Gash has, how it formed, or really like much else. No spoilers, but we might glean some details from the third act of the second film from the quote-unquote labyrinth. Fans of Clive Barker's fiction already know that he is quite the wordsmith. And as such, I want to use a quote from The Hellbound Heart. I have a fairly profound love for this book. So much so that I used to have a tradition of reading it cover to cover every year on Thanksgiving. So here is this quote that summarizes the Cenobites beautifully. This comes from chapter five of The Hellbound Heart. Referring to Frank, he had been arrogant in his dealings with the Order of the Gash. He saw that now. But there were, everywhere, in the world and out of it, forces that encouraged such arrogance because they traded on it. That, in itself, would not have undone him. No, his real error had been in the naive belief that his definition of pleasure significantly overlapped with that of the Cenobites. As it was, they had brought incalculable suffering. They had overdosed him on sensuality until his mind teetered on madness. Then they'd initiated him into experiences that his nerves still convulsed to recall. They had called it pleasure, and perhaps they'd meant it. Perhaps not. It was impossible to know with these minds. They were so hopelessly, lawlessly ambiguous. They recognized no principles of reward and punishment by which he could hope to win some respite from their tortures. 
nor were they touched by any appeal for mercy. He'd tried that over the weeks and months that separated the solving of the box from today. The Cenobites are, in a sense, Lovecraftian. They're not of our world. They are not concerned with our concerns. They have their own ends and their own designs. They've seen it all, heard it all. No human desire is new to them. Their non-humanness is impossible to calculate. And as a result, they have led many people into their world. Here we begin to see one of our first real plot points in this movie. Joe, are you familiar with the philosophical idea of the problem of other minds? Fill me in. Okay, so I will do my best to try to explain this. Um, I am not a classically trained philosopher, so I apologize if this feels like a fumbling sort of explanation. So the quote-unquote problem of other minds asks us, how can we know that other beings exist with their own minds? And that includes a lot of considerations, right? Do other minds exist at all? Do these proposed other minds have the same set of senses, emotions, or drives as me? I want to propose a question based on the details of this problem. If these other minds do exist, can I trust them to be operating from the same place as me? So let's elaborate on this further. We'll start with Frank and his dealing with the Cenobites. From that quote from the Hellbound Heart above, Frank thought that the Cenobites would cater to his desires for his particular tastes and interests, if you will. He didn't ever estimate that they might have different tastes in things like pain and pleasure. He didn't assume that their perspective might come from a not essentially human position. Okay, well, if you're going to fuck around with extra-dimensional religious zealots, one might assume that they're a little off by our standards, right? Could you ever guess where they're actually coming from? Let's expand our circle just a little bit. Frank has a troubled and troubling relationship with Larry's wife, Julia. They shared a moment of indiscretion shortly before she married Frank's brother. Julia and Frank, despite being, I guess, physically intimate, are not really operating from the same place. Julia assumes that Frank wants the same thing as she does. He doesn't, but she couldn't ever really know that. Moreover, Larry, or Rory in the case of the book, assumes that Julia has been on the level with him, that she has never manifested new or different desires from him. They aren't communicating well to start, and the events of the story show us that they weren't ever able to tell each other the truth in the first place. The Hellbound Heart and the first Hellraiser film show us the pitfalls of communication and how difficult it can be to genuinely know or trust another. Admittedly, the problem of other minds is going to be argued for a long time. It's also coming from a place of textbook skepticism. Better philosophers than me have even said that we can argue knowing other minds through perceptions of behavior, much the same way we can perceive really just about anything else. I also hope that you, the audience, will consider this concept for a long time too. And if you'd like to talk about this issue sometime, email us at thefrightlabpodcast at gmail.com or visit us on our Discord server. I'm going to leave a couple of things in the show notes for you to read and discuss in the future, specifically on the problem of other minds. It's a, it's a pretty interesting subject. So the problem of other minds, this was my interpretation. We're talking about how we walk into social situations of all ranges, but let's, let's keep it with just a conversation. You don't know truly what the other person is thinking. 
And we sometimes convince ourselves out of ignorance that our discussion has led to an understanding with that other person. At the end of the day, that person may be insane. And every word that you've been saying to convince yourself that they're on your side now is actually a manipulation from them because they're somewhere else. Fast forward to the Cenobites and the themes of Hellraiser. I don't know the source material who said it first, but there's a lot of concepts here about trust, like you mentioned. There's concepts of truth-telling, which is not the same as trust. And there's concepts of going so far into the human experience that you cease to feel, or what I think the Cenobites are talking about, you cease to have emotional ties to those feelings. You mentioned Frank and his interesting tastes before finally finding the puzzle box and finally opening it. Up until that point, I think Frank was just your insert name of serial killer. At his core, he's looking for experiences, right? So this is somebody who has gone to the extreme in every way you can think of, and in many ways you should never search for on the internet. <laughs> okay, sure. Now, he's failing to realize that the beings that he's summoning that are going to give him the greatest pleasures that have ever existed are just as extreme as he is. And he's failing to understand that, for lack of a better word, the Cenobites are gone. They are beyond caring, feeling good, bad. It's that in the middle, you would call the person a psychopath if they truly had no feeling. I don't think Pinhead or the lead Cenobite, as he was called in the first film. And I don't think he actually had a name until they named him in the second film. And they didn't even formally name him in the second film. It's literally just in the credits. They just, they never call him Pinhead. You know what I mean? I think he's truly a psychopath in that whatever has happened to him up until this point, do, does he enjoy the things that he does? I'll get to that kind of later on, I think. Um, I want to touch on something, uh, kind of rewinding the tape back to what you're saying a minute ago about at his core, Frank is basically just a serial killer. I would dial it back even. I would say he's not even that severe. He is a pervert. He definitely is way too into sex to be healthy in any meaningful sense. And he's probably like it's implied in the book and in the and in the movie slightly that there's probably a drug thing going on there, too. He is a common or garden variety sex pest. He's not even that interesting. Like, ultimately, I think he's... How to put this? We all remember dealing with someone at some point in our life who they were faster than you, better than you. They could outdrink you. They were more, uh, more convincing with their preferred sexual partners. We've all met that guy. Frank is that guy on steroids. So Frank is not an Ed Gein in that... It started with porn, and then that wasn't enough. Well, I mean... Frank is your, I can take it, whatever it is guy. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, let's not imp <laughs> let's not impugn the good name of Ed Keen. <laughs> I couldn't get through that. Sentence. I don't know that we can leave that in the show, my friend. Uh, okay. Uh, well, no, I mean, I mean, Ed Gein wasn't even technically a serial killer. Actually, not a serial killer, but you know what I mean? Uh, 
he's just a, yeah, yeah, I can handle it. And when he's way out of his depth, that's Frank. That's Frank. He's, he's way out of his depth and he just doesn't even know. The next thing I want to talk about, initial entries into the Hellraiser creative universe are, despite all their appearances, fairy tales. This one takes some explanation, so follow me for just a moment. This isn't a precisely new idea within the, the more severe side of the Hellraiser fan base, but it is something left undiscussed in more mainstream film commentary. In short, the movie and the book follow the pattern of fairy tales that we're all familiar with from childhood. Think about it. A princess finds herself having to deal with a wicked stepmother, a father or king figure who is unaware of the dangers, and a monstrous uncle in the shadows. Now, I admit that most of our childhood fairy tales don't involve Faustian bargains with torture demons, but it fits in maybe a German fairy tale sort of way. I also don't hear too many people talking about the Faust myth element within Hellraiser, but that's the subject of another episode way down the line. You know, the, the fairy tale element, it's even commented on by Julia in the second movie. She even cracks a joke about it as she's getting ready to do something awful. And a final point regarding the plot and elements of Hellraiser, we need to talk briefly about the 2022, I don't know, remake or reiteration uh, directed by David Buckner. Just so it's said, I think it was a good movie. Joe, did you see it? I intended to give that film a solid try, and I chose not to. I can't remember the last sequel that they released, but it was very Silent Hill. And it was, I think it was Judgment. That's right, where yeah. you get the story similar to Hellbound uh, Hellraiser 2 where the history and the judgment of Pinhead is kind of the point of the story, or at least the person who became. Um, I really enjoyed that film. It redeemed a bit for me the first sequel that didn't have Pinhead in it. You know oh, what I'm talking well, about. more specifically, <laughs> didn't have Doug Bradley. He's Pinhead in my heart. It was just a horrifying film, and it sat well with me inside of the Hellraiser mythos. Even those sequels that are not great, mm -hmm. the overall product is something we enjoy. We know the first two films are the films, but we enjoy the product overall. And I couldn't bring myself to sit through a reinterpretation of that story because I don't think there's anything wrong with that story. Sure. I will give it a chance, but I have not watched it. How do you feel about it? Like I said, um, I enjoyed it. I thought it was good. I don't think it was great. I don't think it was revolutionary, but I thought it was good. Um, the film does break with the source material in some pretty significant ways, but it does a really good job of keeping kind of the spirit of the book and of the first two movies. Um, I won't spoil anything for you because I want you to see it and I want the audience to see it if they haven't done so already. Uh, it follows a young woman with a recent addiction issue and she has these strained family relationships because of it. And then it kind of on the periphery of the story, at least at first, is this these like sinister predations of this wealthy but ultimately very human monster. The Cenobites in the film are visually really interesting and they do get up to some pretty incredible awfulness throughout the whole runtime. 
Um, there are several allusions to the source material, such as Leviathan, the Labyrinth, so on. There's some dialogue that's cribbed. I don't know that it's necessarily uh, like a must-see movie, but if you wanted some additional Hellraiser without all the stink of those latter-day sequels, it's a good choice. When I started thinking about writing this episode, I found myself thinking about some lyrics from a Tool song. Uh, the song is Stink Fist. The lyrics are, Something kinda sad about the way that things have come to be. Desensitized to everything. What became of subtlety? And how can this mean anything to me if I really don't feel anything at all? Yeah, I'll keep digging till I feel something. The theme of Hellraiser, in some regards, has to do with hedonism and the point at which indulgence disappears and becomes compulsion. There's a big difference between those two. I think that indulgence can be a powerful force, something that can push you through hard times and reward you for your victories, amongst many others. But what about compulsion? That's something you don't control, but something that controls you. As you might imagine, I am no expert on addiction or the psychology of addiction, but I imagine that a good portion of our audience has seen someone slide into these sorts of problems. It is a hell of its own. As such, I think that one of the things that it's almost never discussed really in this entire fandom, Frank is in a hell of his own, both in the first and second films. There's even a line about uh, characters being in a hell of their own in, in the second film. Frank's insatiable need for deeper experience, for more sexual pleasure and the like, well, we see how that ended for him. Julia is in the hell of expecting more from her life, and then the hell of getting way, way, way in over her head. Kirsty is, well, Kirsty is in a hell of being amidst of some awful fucking people, losing everything. <laughs> I mean, right? She is in the hell of dealing with awful fucking people, losing everything in her life, and then constantly having to run for her life. But what about the Cenobites? In the midst of all this sweet, sweet suffering that they just inflict willy-nilly throughout the movie, we never speak of the hell that they occupy. The Cenobites have almost no choice in their actions, right? The box must be opened for them to come. And then they have a job of sorts, torturing whatever SOB happens to complete the Le Marchand configuration in search of some new high. And yet, the Cenobites are clearly bored. They are fucking over it in the first film. The Cenobites must be having to come up with all sorts of new tortures for the violence they commit for it to even register. There's an absolutely masterful exchange in the Hellbound Heart that I think summarizes this perfectly. He was still searching for words when one of them said, This world, it disappoints you. Pretty much, he replied. You're not the first tire of its trivialities, came the response. There have been others. Not many, the gritted face put in. True, a handful at best. But if you have dared to use Le Marchand's configuration, men like yourself, hungry for new possibilities, who've heard that we have skills unknown in your region. I'd expected, Frank began. We know what you expected, the Cenobite replied. We understand to its breadth and depth the nature of your frenzy. It is utterly familiar to us. Chilling, isn't it? The idea that your most far-flung sort of pleasure, the thing that you can just barely imagine, is just pedestrian to them. And their understanding of pleasure is not just different, it's alien. It's absolutely 
disconnected from what you know or for what you want. You opened the box and they came. You just had no idea how far they were going to take it. And how could you? You just wanted the sex you've always dreamed of. You weren't expecting so many hooks, much less whatever awful thing they were already just bored with. My friend, I've never heard anyone call the Cenobites bored. Yeah, um, I I think if you've read The Hellbound Heart, like it's pretty obvious. And there's some dialogue in the first movie just off the top of my head that I think is just so great. And it's the thing I love about Pinhead. I think I've said it on the show before, maybe. I don't know. Um, one of the things I love about uh, the, the Hell Priest, the lead Cenobite, Pinhead, and really all the other Cenobites who have talking parts, they never threaten you, right? They're never saying, I'm going to I'm gonna fucking murder you and we're going to spread you an inch thin across the city. It's never that. It's just everything is a promise. Everything is a guarantee. Everything is, is certain. The box, you opened it. We came. Those are facts. That's just an, a clinical assessment of the chain of events. We want the man who did this. Make him confess. No superlatives there. He is telling you exactly how things need to go. One of the things I love about that is, again, there's just this constant, everything is a statement of fact. If you deceive us, if you're lying to us, your suffering will be legendary, even in hell. That's not a threat. That is just a, I've got a whole list of shit I'm going to do to you if you fuck with me one more time. And by the second, by, by the hellbound heart, you have the pinhead, you have the Cenobites and Pinhead being very much like, wow, funny to meet you here again. Weird how that keeps happening. You know, I'm starting to think this isn't an accident anymore. And that's a very weird kind of sick joke, but you can kind of see their point, right? Why does Kirsty keep popping up in their whole charade? Well, it's not really Kirsty's fault necessarily. In fact, I'd argue it's not even Kirsty's fault at all. Definitely fucking Frank's fault. <laughs> he fucking started it, man. But the problem is Kirsty's caught in the middle of all of that. And it's, yeah, what a mess, right? Not not a, not a place I want to be stuck in the middle of. I never would have said bored. And I'm thinking back to every opportunity they've taken to describe what they're going to do. You mentioned they, they never say, I'm just going to tear you apart, but I'm thinking about that line in the first film, we'll tear your soul apart. If you look at it from the perspective you're presenting, mm -hmm. they are just telling the truth. And I've never interpreted that as boredom. I've interpreted that as, yes, we know, because we've been there. It's like somebody who looks back when a friend comes up and says, I, I just, I, I'm having a hard time. I, I don't know how to get through this. I know how you're feeling because you're exactly two years younger than me. I was there two years ago. I know. Are you suggesting that Pinhead has empathy? In a way that is taken to the nth degree, maybe mm. even to the infinite degree. Yes. I don't know. I, I, the thought of those guys having empathy makes my stomach churn. I, I, I find that to be a really repugnant concept. But I also see how one could maybe credibly argue, and um, once again, I'm not an expert in the subject of torture, big surprise, um, but I have to imagine on some level, one has to have a certain amount of, if, if, if not empathy, sympathy towards a, towards a person to understand how to hurt them in a way. But I would dare go on to argue that the Cenobites don't actually torture anybody. They're just filling the role. They're just doing the thing. You got 
horny in a new and terrible way. You opened the box thinking they would satisfy this new and terrible horniness. And then you found out that no, none of that involved at bare minimum hooks to the face, much less whatever horrible thing they came up with. It is the Spanish Inquisition. These are my new tendencies. I'm here for this, and they're going to pull you past that. Oh, we we know. We know what you thought, and we're going to help you get over that <laughs> right now. I, I love the idea of, of Pinhead as therapist, Pinhead as empathetic listener. Like, he's not going to pour you a cup of Earl Grey, man. He's not. He is not here to help you work through a thing. He's going to work you over. He's he's going to make you wish you had just been murdered, but I don't think of that as empathy. That, that's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting question. That's Cause it's not subject. about pleasure. It's about bliss. It's about being taken so far that nothing affects you anymore. I mean, in a sense, what you're describing is almost like an existential awe. You're being, you're being taken to the furthermost point. Like, you know, we use the word awesome a lot in conversation, but we forget what the word means that a thing inspires awe that a thing inspires reverence and reverent fear. And that's such an interesting concept because again, I don't, I don't know. I, I wonder if on some level that our culture's kind of religious basis, um, you know, being ostensibly uh, that of mosaic law, the, the Christian Muslim and, and Jewish perspective, uh, the, the people of the book, as it were, I wonder if on some level that that, perspective the perspective of that religious cultural background is kind of limiting so uh audience i don't pull back the curtain too much but it's kind of an interesting conversation uh joe and i were taking a break from recording earlier and we had stepped out onto his back porch and i was noting that if you get outside of st louis city and this is true of cities everywhere if you get outside of the city you see a lot more of the stars and then it hits you if you turned off all of the lights lights inside the house, the street lights, the lights along the highway, lights of the cars. You get the idea how dark it actually is out there. And that for the majority of human history, from our most early sapient ancestors to today, if you got outside of the light of the fire, if you got away from the community, once the sun went down, you're hosed because you are now the bottom of the food chain. You have no ability to perceive through your visual cortex, the most important part of the human, uh, you know, sensory organ, if you, one could argue, you you don't you don't have anything, and you are now at the whim and will of a lot of creatures that do. I imagine a good many people died of fright, and that's not just because it conveniently ties into our name of our podcast. I would argue that a lot of people were just so scared of the dark, and that's why a lot of ideas that we have culturally end up popping up. Now, again, that is me just talking. That's me just kind of thinking out loud. But I think that the cultural perspective we have that is so good versus evil, light versus dark, I think Barker kind of hits on this interesting thing with the order of the gash, with the Cenobites, that their morality and their view of the world is just so different from our own. Like I said, I used the word Lovecraftian very intentionally there. One of Lovecraft's big things talking about, you know, these these ancient deities is that they're not just ancient, they are from deep time. They are from a time before time before time. They are alien in the truest sense. They are not of this place, and they do not have our concerns. They literally can't think about things the way we're thinking about. 
you know, I've brought it up in other shows. If you could communicate with some animals like telepathically wouldn't matter because their world is just so violently different from our own. That's my thinking. Um, the difference being at no point does, does these questions of philosophy end up with you opening a box and getting your face all messed up from hooks. I don't know why that, that image bothers me so much. Maybe I just don't <laughs> want hooks in the face. I don't know. We find ourselves at the end of this little retrospective. As the years go on, Hellraiser finds new audiences. It's something of a classic now, and I suspect uh, that will stick with us for a long time. There is something sort of timeless, but Barker's magnificent super butchers isn't there. Something sort of seductive and yet repugnant. I mean, let's face it. Freddy Krueger is nothing but special effects and bad one-liners. But Pinhead and the Order of the Gash? There's a class and a worldliness to them that no one can touch. And who knows? If you found yourself holding the Lament configuration, maybe you would be tempted, if only for a moment, to see if you could solve its puzzle. And would you, dear audience? Could you resist the call of that sort of thing? Or would you just do the sensible thing and just throw it across the room? And maybe you want to tell us about your own personal vision of hell. You can do that by emailing us at thefrightlabpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on our Discord server. Joe, what's the address? Discord.frightlabpodcast.com. There will be a link in the show notes. We're also on Letterboxd at Fright Lab Pod. Just a fun app. They're not sponsoring us. It's just a good time. Go check it out. Joe, can you tell our audience where else they might find you? If you love heavy metal podcasts, and I love heavy metal podcasts, you need to check out every episode we are creating at DiscussMetal.com. We talk about your favorite bands, my favorite bands, heavy metal topics. I've been hanging out with AJ at the Nerf Herder Council. We've been talking about Star Trek. Those guys have the lock on all things nerdy. Who knows? Maybe we can get together and talk about some Event Horizon. I think it's a good idea. What I need from you, listener, thank you for listening to this episode. If this is your first time, if this is not your first time, thank you for listening to this episode. Please take out your phone. Please scroll to the left, scroll to the right. Find the place with the five-star review with the thumbs up, thumbs down. Let us know what you think about these episodes. You heard Lucas say at the Fright Lab podcast at gmail.com. We want to hear everyone. We want to see everyone on Discord. We want to keep this conversation going. And that is where the conversation is going to be, my friends. If you want us to get a Patreon started, let me know. I know a guy. (laughs) Lucas, tell everyone how much we love independent artists, independent media, and independent music. I say it on virtually every episode. You want to get there fast, go by yourself. You want to get there safe, go with the team. And we believe that people out there who are doing horror media like us, be that a podcast, be that music, be it some other project. Are you making an indie horror flick that you just want a couple of eyes on? We want to know about it, and we want to put that out into the world for you. You deserve the credit, and we want to help you get it. And, as always, The Fright Lab is written and researched by me, Lucas Yoakum. It is co-hosted and produced by Joseph Wren. We appreciate every single one of you, and we will talk to you very, very soon. I feel weird like I like I got something out of my system with that episode. 
was a very well written episode, my I friend. I appreciate that. Thank you. It's going to be hard to top that, I think. <laughs>